This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and 6, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I'm your host, Zach Moore, and I'm joined this week by host of Discovery Debrief, a Star Trek podcast, Mr. Chris Clow. What's up, Chris? Not much, man. Thank you for the invitation. This should be an interesting discussion. Yes, yes, sir. So this is this is part two of our examination of the use of the original series in the second season of Star Trek Discovery. And you know, you know, Chris, you know, I, I really enjoy y'all's takes over on Discovery Debrief because it, it's a good mix of like I'm a Star Trek fan and I want to love this, but I see some issues and it's not perfect. Just level-headed conversation about Discovery because it, it, Discovery is a very contentious topic in fandom. I, I don't know if you've realized this or not, Chris. Oh, I've <laughs> I've absolutely realized it. I mean, I kind of figured that that was going to end up being the case when we started the show that we do because we kind of did it on a whim. It was probably turned around in the span of maybe 48 hours when we actually decided to, to jump into it. Um, and yeah, we, we've, we've encountered a couple of people who've interacted with the show that have tried to express their enormous misgivings. But the thing that I've always said, and if, if you listen to our show, then you probably heard me say it. CBS and I have an agreement. If they give me Star Trek, I will give them money. So that's where we are. Just so you know where I stand on it, I have been critical of Discovery. And I know you're, you like me, you kind of grew up with the Star Trek encyclopedia as like one of your religious texts, oh, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. So, <laughs> so, so, so help me, help me reconcile all these things, Chris, because I, I think what it really comes down to for me with Discovery. It just uses so much of the original series, especially season two, and that's what we're talking about. Season two is wrapped. We kind of can look back on it now. We can see how heavily it relied on the original series and the mythology. And and I think honestly, a lot of these issues that 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 I see from where I'm sitting would have been solved had they not just said, "Hey, this is an alternate timeline," right? Because they did that with the Kelvin timeline, and I, you know, I, a lot of people still have issues with that. I thought that was a brilliant move to kind of say, you know what. Original series happened over here. We're happening over there. Everything, everything is still good. You know, it opens up the universe. But I think the insistence that Discovery was a contemporary of the original series has caused 
a, a lot more um, baggage than it needed to have, in my opinion. So where, where do, you, do you do you hear where I'm coming from? Like, where do you stand on that? I understand where you're coming from, especially as a as a fellow TOS fan. I mean, my perspective is that like a lot of shared universe fiction, one of the greatest strengths of the Star Trek franchise is the longstanding continuity. Uh, I love when capable storytellers, whether it's in television, whether it's in movies, whether especially whether it's in Star Trek or not, can nestle the events of a new story somewhere in part of the timeline that we haven't seen. And as someone who spent an inordinate amount of time as a kid reading through the history of the 23rd century, it always occurred to me that it seemed like there was a lot of room in there that could be played with. So when it was first announced that Discovery was going to be taking place in the 23rd century, I was immediately excited by that prospect because this was a show that potentially had the opportunity to answer a lot of questions that I had had about that point in the history of the Federation. And when the show started, yeah, it was a little disruptive seeing the, the enormous aesthetic departure, but the, the comparison that I've always made, at least when it comes to the aesthetic presentation and the, the, the huge discrepancy between the way that TOS looks and the way that Discovery looks, it's not too dissimilar from what DC Comics did with the new 52, for instance, because there was an issue of like Batman Incorporated, I think, that flashed back to Batman's first encounter with Ra's al Ghul. And uh, he wasn't wearing the Neil Adams suit in that flashback. He was wearing the new 52 suit. When we know, we look back at that issue, he was wearing a very different costume. It's just like it's an adjustment on a floating timeline to account for the new realities of the universe. And with Discovery, I feel like it could have been so much different if there wasn't a significant amount of care that came from the writer's room on that show. Because I think that over the course of both seasons, they have demonstrated that they have a rather intimate understanding of every aspect of Star Trek canon. And they've just decided to push it into a different direction. So I really like the fact that the first two seasons have taken place in the 23rd century. It's been a while since the second season finale. That is not going to be the status quo for season three. They're going in an entirely different direction. And honestly, that's what worries me more than taking place in the 23rd century, being so far removed in what's to come kind of makes me nervous about what season three is going to have but it's also exciting that we're going into totally uncharted territory for the next season but when it comes to the tos connection and the proximity to tos i mean we could probably get into what it means to have michael burnham be so closely tied to a pillar of the franchise but um particularly when it comes to season two and especially when it comes to the exploitation of captain pike the proximity to tos in discovery season two was nothing but a win for me that i i, I was blown away by the way that captain pike was characterized and 
the way that they bear hugged the continuity, especially by the end of season one, by showing the enterprise and eventually featuring the enterprise more prominently. We even talked on debrief. We never thought the enterprise was going to show up, especially to the degree that we have seen it now. And I was, it, it was emotional when, for me, when they went into the interiors of that ship, even though it looked different, it had a, enough of a tinge of familiarity and the characters were recognizable enough that I was legitimately moved by the episodes that actually took place aboard the enterprise. Uh, so overall I think it's a strength and, um, and I'm honestly sad that we're moving so far away from the 23rd century in season three. It's interesting because I I'm kind of the opposite as far as where they're going for season three. Cause now I'm like, okay, good. Now they can kind of forge their own path. You know, because I think, not, I mean, we can, you know, as Star Trek fans, right, we can get to the minutia of what deck what was on and what, whose room was where and the ship. I mean, they even got, you know, got to give them credit. They got Spock's quarters right. Yeah. The, 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 the number in the section. Now, I guess he had that same quarters for 15 years, but hey. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I mean, think about he, it. He had a particular spot. He was satisfied and settled where he was. I, I don't like moving. I don't know about you. I hate moving. So <laughs> It's a very Vulcan utilitarian choice to stay in that same quarter for 15 years, right? So so th- th- there is, you know, there's all the aesthetic stuff and that's its own kind of conversations and you can go down those rabbit holes, right? Uh, I I I do love the fact to to kind of I mean, I you say bear hug the continuity and I I totally understand what you're saying by that. But but to me, it, it, I would have still liked because we had up till this point, right, in Star Trek on screen canon, right. Um, whenever you looked back at the twenty third century, it looked like the twenty third century. You know, when Scotty goes on the holodeck, it's the bridge from the original series. When Cisco and Dax go to the Enterprise bridge, it's the Enterprise from the Show of Tribbles. When the Defiant shows up. The original series Defiant, not the DSN Defiant, shows up in the Mirror Universe, right? It is the 60s aesthetic. Now, I guess the real question is if they could have... And we'll get we'll get this aesthetic stuff out of the way, then we'll talk some story stuff. Because I know this is just minutia, right? <laughs> but do you think that they could have made it work? Because I think on Enterprise, it really looked great. Because they updated those panels, and they had screens, and you know... Like I, I, but do you think they could have had a you know a cage era bridge? Which honestly, I think the cage era bridge dates a lot better than the original series bridge with the muted colors. I as agree with that. The reds and all that stuff. Like I, I, I feel like they could have done more. Now, I'll say this right. I think that the Discovery has a much uh, more faithful bridge of the Enterprise than we saw on you know the the JJ films. Oh right? yes. Uh, but of course, they have that excuse of it's a different timeline. This is a different ship. All that stuff. I I understand that. But but yeah. So so what we got was very faithful. But do you think they really, if they really leaned into it, Chris? Do you think that people would have accepted that this like the nineteen sixties bridge on a two thousand nineteen show? Because that seems to be the point of contention for a lot of people. And I I say if they handled it right, they could have. But they had to be very careful about it. That's where I stand. Uh. We would have accepted it, but really at the end of the day, they make these shows hopefully to expand the umbrella of Star Trek fandom, you know, in, in ways not seen since 2009. And 
Would I have loved to have seen that? Oh, sure. Of course. Because I have a really, really great emotional attachment to the original production design of TOS. I don't think it's practical to do that. But that, so, so then it, you know, it brings up another question. So, okay. If we are going to restrict ourselves to a 50 year old production design, then does that mean that, well, we can never tell modern stories at this point in the canon again? I don't think that's a trade-off that's worthy of taking place. The potential reward for telling stories in a lesser-seen part of the Star Trek canon... I would like to see more stories take place there. Honestly, I didn't think it was possible to see more stories take place there until Discovery came along. You know, the the, the Kelvin timeline is a totally different beast. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to be on TV now, especially considering the amount of money that they poured into Discovery, you have to stretch your legs a little bit. You have to get people's attention. And really, it's, it's the same, and I, I bring up comics again, and I apologize for anybody who doesn't read them, who's <laughs> listening to this show. But, you know, the, the history of of uh, comic book canon shifts around so much, especially in the in the aesthetic department. The one through line always is the the tenor of the stories and the tone and feel of the characters. As long as those are consistent, people don't really care all that much about a minor alteration to a superhero costume. I mean, there are some that do, sure, like with any fandom, but... As long as the characters and the stories are on point, then that can justify those kinds of aesthetic changes. And I think Discovery is a beautiful show. And if they had restricted themselves to a 50-year-old aesthetic, then we would not get that rewarding aspect of the experience of watching Discovery. Um, Now, by by that same token... um, while we were watching the first season, one of our co-hosts, Zaki Hassan, who's a good friend of mine and uh, and a great Star Trek fan, he made the point, and it's a very valid point, that, well, previous exploitations of the canon that take place in the 23rd century, they treat it as a period in history. And there is a lot of merit to to that kind of an argument. But if you're going to restrict yourselves in 2017 18 19 to a 50 year old aesthetic that has the potential to restrict the kinds of stories that you can tell in that part of the timeline i just don't think that's a worthy trade-off so considering what we did see out of the design of the enterprise bridge and the ship itself it seemed like there was a lot yeah yeah exactly it seemed like there was a lot of care that went into um to sort of the update of the constitution class ship and and one of the things that I admire about Discovery, and I know it pissed some people off, but I admired the fact that they just got out in front of the fact that there's a big difference in the aesthetics when they showed that previously on that featured footage from the cage. <laughs> and uh, yes, and I kind of loved that just because it's getting right in front of the fact that, yes, this is different. That has to be the longest gap between a previously on and the follow-up episode in television history, in my estimation. But um, if they didn't do that, 
or if they were restricted in the aesthetic department and the trade-off is that we don't get some kind of a follow-up in Captain Pike's story. I don't think that's a trade-off worth taking because, man, I loved those direct interactions with the cage. I never thought I'd see a Telosian again. I never thought I'd see Vina again. And that episode in and of itself kind of proved to me the strength of Discovery's concept by taking place in that part of the 23rd century, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, we'll put a pin in, in that for a second for a brief tangent. And so so you liked the Cage introduction of, or the previously on, before If Memory Serves. You, you were a big fan of that. I was. I just didn't know what to make of it when I first saw it. Because it was, it, I, I mean, I understand what they were doing, right? But it, it just felt kind of the, the, the kitschiness of the intro. Like you have like cutouts and music and all that. And I wasn't sure if it was a, like a memory of Pike or kind of a flashback. And I guess they tried to have both. And I actually had to, like when I first saw that, I stopped and read it. I couldn't really believe what I was seeing. Because <laughs> you know, you know, it was like, wow, this is this is the cage here. Wow, I didn't expect that. It was Jeffrey Hunter and a, and a hard cut to Anson Mount. And here we are. And and I guess that's, uh, you know, the, to your point, you know, they they did bear hug that, right? Like this, here it was, right? Um, I, I see seeing it, I just, I, I just was so taken out of of the the kind of dis- the, the universe discovery is building there i thought you know and this is just this is not a make or break thing right this is me talking right i thought it would have been really cool if they would have recreated the scenes with the new actors you know because they had all the actors they had they had spock they had vina they had pike they had delusions right um i guess in retrospect that would have spoiled the fact of like hey vina shows up right because that was kind of when i knew they were going to tell us four i'm like well we're probably going to see some delusions but are we going to see vina <laughs> too you know um <laughs> So, so I, I guess that they were in a tough spot with that. So that was that was an interesting way to go about it. I'll, I'll give it that. Well, right? and also too, though, again, when it comes to opening up the umbrella further, it makes a clear statement to people who may not have ever seen the cage that this is a follow up to something that has been shown in the franchise before, and you know, barring just getting past the novelty of the fact that. The cage has actually finally been followed up on in a substantive way uh, with the primary characters that were featured in that episode. The idea of just kind of going with the with the perspective that yes, this is new Star Trek taking place around that same time, a decades belated sequel to the cage, effectively. I enjoyed the ballsiness of that, honestly, because it felt like it was giving service to Star Trek's past by, uh, you mentioned the kitschiness, and it's kind of hard to get away from that considering what a lot of the the promotional materials for TOS were even back in the 60s. And by, by sort of embracing that and then taking things further by showing us that, no, that stuff still counts. We're not getting away from the fact, or we're not trying to to brush the cage under the rug, even with these huge visual disparities. That happened, and this is what is next. I liked that. I thought that it was a, a nice declarative statement about owning Star Trek's history while not being limited by the visual language that it used to push the story forward. And that's a good segue into, you know, we talk about aesthetics here. You know that that's just icing on a on a on a much more serious cake to to attend to here, right? <laughs> so it, it was an odd choice 
to to build so much of the second season of your new Star Trek show around an existing Star Trek show and characters. Gene Roddenberry had a very strict set of rules when Next Generation started, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like, you can't, and you know, we joked about it then, we'll joke about it now. McCoy shows up in the pilot, and in the first production episode is a direct remake of an original series episode, and they mention Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. But if you ignore that, right, if you ignore <laughs> that, Gene Roddenberry had some very strict rules about you can't mention Spock, you can't mention Kirk, right? I mean, Iris Stephen Bear has talked about how he really had to negotiate and work hard to get uh, it allowed to say the word Spock in the episode Sarek, which is crazy. You got Spock's dad on the show, yeah. <laughs> but they don't want to say Spock's name, right? So... I thought that was, you know, rather draconian and extreme, but I do see the logic and advantage of it because if you think about, you look at Next Gen and everybody says, well, you know, best of both worlds, that's where they came to its own. I, I You know, the whole third season is really where it came to its own, mm-hmm. but that's because these characters had a chance to stand on their own. You know, they weren't in the, the because the fans were going to compare all the characters and all the series all the time. They didn't need to be doing it up on the screen, right? Right. But then you look over at Discovery, and they they've really said, you know what? Hey, bring on Captain Pike, bring on Spock, bring on Number One. And I would say, to the detriment of anyone who's not, you know, Michael Burnham, perhaps Stamets and Saru, right? Other than them, all the other characters, we still don't, we we still know as little about them as we did in the first couple of episodes, you know. And I would ask you, do how do you feel that that they melded like they brought on characters like Pike and Spock to take up so much story time and so much screen time when they have a whole cast of characters who, you know, in season three and onward will, will hopefully get to know more, right? Because there's no one else to bring in, right? Um, that it's kind of disproportionate how we spend all the attention on you know Spock and Pike as much as we love Pike, right? I think that's universal. Everyone universally loves him on Discovery. Like no matter where you are on the spectrum, I think everybody can agree that Anson Mount was the greatest Pike, and it was it was great to see that character, you know, in his element because we never really got to see it until now. Mm-hmm. Um, but was was that a to to a detriment of all the other characters on the show? Arguably, yes. But it served a larger purpose in giving greater service to the franchise overall. Because, especially now that we know where Season 3 is going, uh, in totally uncharted territory, unchained from anything else that the franchise has ever done, uh, using the more recognizable characters to anchor the beginning of the show in the first two seasons, to me is actually pretty smart. Because it gives us a greater level of investment in what their contributions were to the characters that we know. And now that we have that context for what their importance is, at least in the minds of the uh, the longstanding characters that directly interacted with them. I think that for longstanding fans, it gives them a greater sense of understanding and ownership of who these new characters are going to be as they sail into the quite literal unknown. Uh, But also at the same time, too, the opportunity to get brand new in-continuity stories in the prime timeline with these longstanding characters is a great thing for for longtime fans, too. Uh, I mean, I really never thought that we'd get a prime timeline Spock story again after Leonard Nimoy died. And uh, the fact that we did get one again, in in my mind as a Star Trek fan, is kind of a gift because 
while I was a little bit wary of how they were going to be using Spock, especially in the beginning, I was pretty happy with the way that the character was utilized by the end of season two of Discovery, uh, especially because it seemed like it gave potentially some additional context to elements of Spock that we see in later shows and in movies. And, uh, and that's something that I wasn't expecting. So the, you know, the Jack's out of the box now they can go off and they can do anything that they want to do, uh, in this, you know, post Federation galaxy, at least if the Calypso short trek was any indication. And, um, and we also, in the meantime, got a season of stories with characters that for most of my life, anyway, I've wanted to see more of for a long time. Most of all being Captain Pike and, and even the little bit that we got of number one, I was really happy with because I've always thought that that character uh, deserved more stories on in, in live action, let's say. I mean, I've read books that have included her, but of course those aren't in continuity. You get into a whole EU thing. But, you know, getting that crew of the Enterprise... Even if it was only brief, and I hope that it wasn't, that's a whole other conversation if they actually decide to move forward with something ongoing. But um, I think that it was a price worth paying to get the stories that we did get with the longstanding characters. No, I I, I see what you're saying. I I just, I wish that they would have perhaps, I mean, would, would people have received a Captain Pike show out of the box, right? Uh, Or... Is that is that? Do you feel like this kind of, you know, melding of the original discovery and then the the old characters is that kind of is that necessary to kind of win people over to a Captain Pike show? Yes, because of the the performance of Anson Mount. You know, if we had never had that context before he was cast, and like if they had just announced a Captain Pike show starring Anson Mount, then we would have been going, oh, okay, well maybe that'll be something else. But now there are people who are clamoring for it because of what we saw in season two of Discovery. And by that same token, considering uh, the ability for this writer's room to build up the characters that we are just now meeting, I was floored at how effectively they built up Arium just in one episode. I mean, they killed her off, which was heartbreaking, but the fact that they were able to make it heartbreaking is kind of an achievement. When it comes to single episode writing, the fact that they were able to make her death as poignant as it was within the runtime of one episode gives me faith that future exploitations with the characters that we don't know much about in the future can be good and that I can get invested in them. I'm not worried about the future of Discovery, especially knowing that there is a future of Discovery that doesn't include these characters that we know so well. With Arium, yes, that was like, oh, this is intriguing. This is going to be like a like a data's day for Arium, right? That right. episode, and then it just takes takes a left turn. Like, oh, well, she's dead now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully that doesn't happen with all the cast when we get to know them around the bridge. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of shows that Star Trek could learn lessons from in the modern day, but I don't think Game of Thrones is one of them. So, 
See, for where I sit, I I am really looking forward to them being so far removed from the original series because I just the, the Star Trek encyclopedia that is my brain just <laughs> just it's hard to to make the connections. And, but I know I know what the bridge of the Enterprise looked like in twenty two sixty five, and blah, 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 you know the, those are the things. That, why are they wearing red shirts and not tan shirts, right? Because you know, so those that's those are my initial reactions to these things, and that will be removed now, and now I can just kind of watch it as is. Um, and it's not kind of shackled by choice to its own time period. I thought it was interesting, though, that they said, oh, we're, we're finally free of canon. We're free of continuity. Like, that's part of their inspiration for moving a thousand years in the future. But then I thought, well, you guys chose to be in this <laughs> in this time period. So I don't I, I don't think the master plan was ever to, to shoot them ahead to the future. But, I mean, obviously they, they felt the need to address things like the Discovery, like the Spore Drive, like Michael Burnham, right? I mean, at the end, they pretty much say, "All right, we can never speak of this again," and that 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 seemed pretty cheap to me as a as a quote unquote fix. Is I don't I don't feel like it was a fix, but I know they think it was a fix, right? Yeah, I mean, I I spoke about in our um, our discussion episode for the season finale that uh, I wasn't too pleased with the way that the season ended. It did seem like a rather simplistic explanation to me, and uh, I think that they could have done better. But I also can't argue with the fact that it's now, it's done and it's a launching pad for them to do something that we've never seen before. So, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with the fact that that was a little bit of a, a deus ex machina. Um, because that's, at least continuity wise, it seems like that's what it is. Uh, well, well, I, I thought it was a missed opportunity to, to not use like time travel and have like, because I, I always thought Enterprise was going to end this way, to be honest. Like, there was going to be a temporal Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. It's like there's going to be some big time vortex, right? And and the Enterprise has to fly into it, you know, like all good things style, right? Enterprise NX-01 has to fly into it and and save the day. And, and they get erased from history, but some but they save the galaxy, right? So, mm -hmm. I, honestly, I thought, and I, my mind was still here on Discovery. Like, okay, we got this Red Angel. We got this time suit. We got these, these characters you've never heard of before and all this technology. There's going to be some kind of big time thing, and they're going to save the galaxy, but they're going to be erased from existence and and that would have that would have served the same purpose as like never talking about someone again and from my where i'm from my view it just would have been more tragic because you know that you would have never known the sacrifices these people made but we know as the viewer they made them but in universe they didn't instead of saying well that's top secret we can't discuss it so eh, that's where i sit on it well but it also if, if they were just completely excised from having interacted with the characters in the past though then you would also cut out something which I know that they were totally intending. They were building up an element of of Spock's character, and especially in the in the season finale, they gave Michael the chance to give Spock some advice that we know he now retconned, of course, but that we know he follows into TOS by finding his opposite. And I thought that that was kind of an interesting and poetic and uh, soft way to give us a reference to Captain Kirk without actually saying or seeing him. <laughs> but also, but still acknowledging the fact that he plays a very important part in Spock's life uh, and that, you know, we get to see Spock at a point in his life before he gets to encounter the friendship that will define him for the rest of his life. I liked that, and I like the idea that... Michael could have potentially helped 
especially Sarek, because we saw quite a bit of development with Sarek over the two seasons. Uh, giving a new perspective to Sarek and his relationship with Spock through Michael, particularly in season one, I think is valuable because it just gives a whole other level of context. So when I watch Journey to Babel now, I have way more information about what the dynamic is between Sarek and Spock that I find valuable in the overall scheme of the story, the long running story that is Star Trek at large, if that makes sense. I, I gotta be honest with you, Chris. I I hated the fact that she told Spock to go be friends with Kirk. Like, I I really didn't like that. I felt it was very Hey guys, here comes Captain Kirk. You know, like I, 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 she had, she had played such an integral role in Spock's life already with Sarek and Amanda. Like I just felt that was a little too much. I, I, I liked Spock and Kirk just kind of finding each other on their own because people as friends, you know, there's opposites out there, and I find that's what I found so interesting about their, their, their friendship. Well, but we also know too that across universes the currents of time the currents of destiny bring them together i mean i know that that sounds a little melodramatic but we know (laughs) that that's an important alliance we know that that's an important friendship and i don't think it necessarily takes away from the fact that they do link up and become as good of friends as they do uh i think it just helps show that maybe michael helped to aim spock towards someone that really by all accounts, is a polar opposite of him from a personality perspective. You know, like, why are these guys friends in the first place? Uh, Something had to have guided them together. And there's a whole, um, we we don't really know too much canon-wise. I mean, there's been a lot of EU material and, of course, the 2009 movie, but we don't know a whole lot canon-wise about what it was that actually brought their bond together. And a simple statement, I don't think that does a lot to change the total dynamic of what their friendship is. But, you know, in the moment, I wasn't crazy about it. But as I thought more about it after seeing the season finale, it made sense to me that something could have pushed Spock towards someone that on its face, it doesn't seem like they would have been friends. See, this is why I like talking to you, Chris, because you can can help smooth over these rough edges <laughs> that I'm having trouble like fitting into the, the the puzzle that is the Star Trek continuity you know if it wasn't if they didn't really and honestly if they didn't make Michael Burnham the center of everything that had happened in this universe I might have been more like oh that's cool her and Kirk and Spock but the fact that she was so integral to like everything <laughs> up to this point in the show <laughs> I was like they, they have to give her that too you know I, th- I think really that's if it was just isolated I do see what you're saying but more of it was like a culmination of the fact that she is the most important person over the last two years in the Star Trek universe, you know? Yeah, I can see that. I mean, Michael as a character is... I mean, clearly the writers want to give her a place of importance in the canon, and I think they've effectively done that, um, (laughs) you know, by design. But I I think that the place that she serves, especially as kind of a... uh, a more understandable perspective inside of Sarek's family gives her value and gives the idea of the show taking place at this point in time value. Uh, I really enjoyed 
seeing uh, Sarek have to make the choice between which of his children to send to the Vulcan Science Academy. Uh, because it also helps to give further context to why Sarek and Spock had the falling out that they did. Uh, you know, because on its face, yeah, we, we for 50 years, we took what was shown to us in Journey to Babel as just gospel. But we didn't really know the why behind what drew them apart outside of the fact that they just clearly had different perspectives on what Spock's place was going to be. But giving Sarek that choice almost gives him a more, I guess, sympathetic perspective in the breakdown of their relationship. And I think there's room to explore stuff like that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm nervous about them moving so far ahead into the future. Because yes, it's unknown territory, but it also takes future potential away from giving greater context to things that I know I like from the original series. And I know for some people that will be a plus, but yes, I, I am one of those people, <laughs> but, it, but again, you know, this writer's room, I think demonstrated that they understood what they were doing and that they love the franchise. I, at least that's how I see it. So if we had a more careless writer's room that kind of made these larger character changes arbitrarily and without a larger narrative purpose, that would be one thing, but I don't think the writers of Discovery do that. It seems to me like they measure every choice that they make and they know the impact that it's going to have canonically. And I appreciate that. Well, I think it will do this series a great service to have, you know, a complete season without any major changes behind the scenes, you know, because if you look at both seasons so far, there have been some massive shakeups and who's the showrunners, the writers, you know, some season arcs got kind of complicated when people left and new people came on and, you know, just, just to, it, it's all been wacky doodle to quote Maurice Hurley, right? <laughs> About the first two years of the next generation, right? It's very similar. And, you know, I, I really want to see like, okay, guys, here's the deal. Here's the plan for this season. We're all going to stay here all season. We're going to see this through because you can you can kind of see where things, at least from from my opinion, I can kind of see where. Oh, okay. Well, this there obviously a change is made here, right? In the first season, it was like the Klingon War, and then here's the Mirror Universe for a while, and this and this season was like the search for Spock, and then it was oh the Red Angel and the the Sphere Data and Control, um, and like I, I didn't feel like the flow of the seasons. I did kind of see the melding point in the center. And to me, having it in the future, you know, it, it, the, the, it is a blank slate, and I'm very excited for that. And you, we can have all the things that you want to see, we can have on the Captain Pike show, right, Chris? Conceivably. I mean, if there is one that's coming, I mean, I would, I, I would love to see that. But, um, you know, when it comes to the, the, I guess, the unevenness of the stories, I think that those that, that that fact is very very clear in both of the season finales, because mm. both seasons of Discovery, if I'm being totally honest, crashed to the end. The first season finale was not a particularly satisfying. It had a satisfying punctuation at the very end, but it was a very simplistic kind of conclusion to a conceivably complex. Uh, geopolitical or galactic political occurrence in a war between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. I was uh, I was left a little cold 
in the first season finale. And the second one, because it had, it was juggling so many things, I felt like the second season finale also crashed to the end. But that did not undo the value that I thought the shows brought to specific characters in season one. I found a lot of value in the journey of Captain Lorca. I thought Lorca was a fascinating character that I Mm -hmm. was hoping we would see more of, but now I'm not so sure of that. (laughs) And, uh, and then in season two, it's it's Captain Pike. And, um, really by default, Anson Mount has become the definitive Captain Pike because he spent the most time with the character compared with the three people who have performed him in live action. And, uh, I think we got a pretty good, uh, we got a pretty good hand when we got to see Anson Mount as Captain Pike. That is a performance and really a spirit of Starfleet captain that was sorely needed on Discovery. Because I would argue that Ca- that Captain Giorgio was in that vein, but we didn't get to spend a lot of time with Prime Captain Giorgio. So by pivoting to a guy that we not only know, but that is has had a legendary sort of stature in the Star Trek universe for over five decades. And by giving us a new look at him, I'm just over the moon with what we got from Anson Mount as Captain Pike. So do I hope that we get a show? Do I hope we get Star Trek Enterprise 2 out of this? (laughs) You you bet your ass I do. I loved Anson Mount as Captain Pike. Star Trek Enterprise 2. That would be... (laughs) Fun title for the, I mean, for the show. Yeah, they'd have to like. I think um, Cicero Holmes, one of our co-hosts, he he recommended Star Trek One Seven O One. I wouldn't be against that, but uh, I think there's plenty of room to see because there's a whole decade between the point of uh, the end of Discovery and the fate that we know and that he knows is coming for him, and that's a lot of room to tell some stories. So. I'd be into it. That's a good point there, Chris. Where do you stand on him knowing his future? Because I, I liked the execution of him seeing his future and his reaction and the whole, and I read an interview with Anson Mount. He was talking about how they kind of conceive that scene uh, where he sees the future, kind of like the end of 2001, where he's like, he, he's one age and he looks over, he's the other phase of Pike. And it's, and I the, the, the gradual reveal of the chair, kind of like Dave Bowman at the end of 2001. I thought that was a very cool uh, reference to that. And just in, in storytelling fashion. Um, but I don't know how I feel about fate and destiny in the Star Trek universe. I mean, to me, that's more Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And to have 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 this time crystal that showed him his irrevocable, irre- like, I can't even speak now, but the immovable <laughs> object of his future. Like, to, and even in the finale, he's like, well, if, if I saw my future and I can stay in this room and it'll blow up. It's like, well, yeah, you're right, because we know your future. So I, I think that would be a challenge in a Captain Pike show to have to just know his fate and have him know his fate. So that's a, that's a new wrinkle. And I don't I don't know where I stand on that, to be honest. Like, I, I like the execution, but I disagree with the kind of the idea, if that makes sense. Yeah, I no, I understand. Um the reason that I like it is because it just further goes to illustrate, arguably better than anything else could, the the character of Captain Pike and what he's willing to put ahead of himself in order to achieve the goal of the greater good. You know, like they 
The thing that I really appreciated over the course of season two, and my wife and I joked about it while we were watching the episodes as they were coming out, is just like, Captain Pike is the guy who will immediately throw himself on the sword if he thinks there's a chance of saving someone else. And that, and before that episode even aired, we it just gave greater service to, oh, so that's the thing, clearly, that ends up crippling him. That level of selflessness directly contributes to what we know is awaiting him. And, uh... It fleshes out a character trait of him, yes. Yeah, exactly. And by actually allowing him to see it, it certainly wasn't a direction I was expecting them to go into. Uh, but I, I liked it because it helped to further em- emphasize just how good of a man he is. And um, in modern TV, characters like that are in kind of short supply outside of a couple of specific superhero TV shows. And um, having a character that we can empathize with that much and that we now know to understand what the cost is going to be to him, but him saying, screw it, I'm going to do it anyway... I think that that's pretty cool. And yes, I don't disagree with you, though, that elements of fate are a little bit more fantasy-laden than uh, than science fiction. But uh, extraordinary characters deserve extraordinary circumstances. It's certainly not something that we see with a lot of other characters. I mean, any future or possible futures that we've seen in the franchise usually don't actually end up happening in the franchise. This is, I think the only instance that I can really think of that something prophesied actually does end up coming true. I agree with you. I think it's the only time it was like, this is the future. You can't change it. And usually our characters see that as a challenge and we're going to find a way. And they usually find a way But this time. Mm -hmm. Not going to find a way for Pike. Yeah. And he kind of resigns himself to it. And the fact that he Plus, too, like, if they decide to actually do something that's more ongoing and episodic with Captain Pike in the future, there's always things that they could throw into it. Like, maybe his view of what his future is fades over time the longer he's not exposed to a time crystal. I mean, there's all sorts of things. I like that, Chris. I like that. I like it. I like it. (laughs) I mean, there's all sorts of things that they can do, but in that moment, clear-eyed and aware of what awaits him, and still choosing damnation, I think is a is a really cool character move that just serves to build up the kind of man that he is. You know, and that's an excellent point about him as a you know just a, a good guy, right? Because the anti-hero, the you know the Walter Whites and the Dom Drapers of the world, right? Those are the big main characters of TV shows these days. It seems Captain Lorca. Right, yeah, <laughs> in season yeah. one of Discovery, right, and and to see you know like a, a Captain America type, right, the, he he falls on the grenade, right, as you said, Pike jumping on the phaser, that kind of thing, you know, th- that's refreshing, and I think audiences they we're yearning for that because entertainment has kind of they they've turned you know the pendulum has has turned so far the other way to kind of show us, hey, we have these you know. Uh, buttoned up all American square jawed heroes for years. Now we're going to show you a more complicated, you know, hero, but, but you know what? Straight up good guys can be complicated as well. 
Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of story to be mined from that, and I think that's a big reason why people have gravitated towards Captain Pike. And I will say, we've talked about Captain Pike so much on Standard Orbit the last few weeks, you know, just because <laughs> of Discovery and stuff. I mean, and, and yeah, I mean, we'll have to we'll have to put we'll have to move on to other characters at some point. But just just the reinvigoration of that character and kind of bringing him to light in the, in the fashion they did, you know. Uh, that, that that's that's great. I mean, that's undisputably great about Discovery season two. And I think we, for all the many opinions about how this was used there in timeline and the bridge looks and all that, we can all sit at the table and agree that we loved Captain Pike and we want to see more of him, right? Yeah. And how often do we get that out of Star Trek in the 21st century? You know, I mean, you're around my age, so you were there and you saw what people were saying about Enterprise on a regular basis in probably the same forums that I was traveling in. And uh, not a lot of people had a lot of good things to say about Enterprise while it was on. But now, in the fullness of time, Enterprise is seen as a more legitimate extension of the franchise than what's on the air currently. And... So in 10 years, whenever they create whatever the next show is going to be, it's going to be Discovery that's yearned for. That's just the way that these things seem to travel all of the time. So it's funny that fandom operates in these rather predictable cycles of uh, hatred followed by adulation, given the rose-colored lenses that they could all be putting on, you know, I mean, I've seen a couple of people on Twitter, uh, who say that Star Trek died in 1969 and everything after 1969 is not Star Trek. And at least they're consistent, but fandom, I think at large and particularly Star Trek fandom is pretty forgiving as long as it stays true to the core spirit of the franchise. And I do think that discovery does do that. Well, you know, thinking about it as we talk here, I, I think there might have been, hey, call me closed-minded and old-fashioned, I think there might have been too much change all at once with Discovery, and I think that's why you see a lot, like, from all different angles of people, the criticism that the show gets, because just the storytelling technique is so different, the presentation is so different, the aesthetics are so different, because, you know, remember, up until Discovery... Every single aesthetic change was accounted for in universe in Star Trek. Right, you had the, the Klingons. We, you know, Enterprise are now their way to explain that. I think the in joke in Deep Space Nine was good enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe should have just left it at that. Um, the Enterprise had a refit, right, for the motion picture. You know, uh, time went on. You know, and and to the next generation era. So th- to have all to have Star Trek come back in a new format with a new storytelling style with a radically different aesthetic change and then to set it in the time period of something that had already been firmly established. And like the window is closing in. We have Enterprise, then we have the Kelvin timeline movies, the original series, that little window, the 23rd century you just mentioned keeps getting smaller. But I, I don't know. I, I think I think fandom maybe could have assimilated it better if it was just, just maybe one or two degrees uh, less change, if that makes sense. Well, but you also have to think of it this way. I mean, isn't the idea of a new exploitation. And I, I know I've said the phrase before on, on in this very discussion, but isn't the, uh, the whole idea to create new fans? And how can you create new fans? Yes, there are things that they could have done that would have absolutely kept the most dyed-in-the-wool among us happy. <laughs> but they didn't do that. And the reason that they didn't do that is because, really, at the end of the day, why does Star Trek exist? To make money for the people who own it. Uh... And 
hopefully the people that they hire who want to make the money are going to be the ones who want to give real emotional service to the characters that we have all grown up with for a long time. But in order to expand the umbrella and in order to create more Star Trek fans in the future, it has to change and it has to be allowed to evolve, sometimes in ways that aren't very comfortable to us. And for my money, the pivots that Discovery made are far more acceptable than some of the pivots that were made in the 2009 film. Because the 2009 film, as fun as it is, and as much as I do enjoy watching it, and as much as I admire the the creative and continuity gymnastics that it does to still make <laughs> everything before it count, it was still a far more simplistic story with the label of Star Trek than we had seen in a very long time in the franchise. And... I think the thing that I admire the most about Discovery is not only is it willing to be different, but it wants, it seeks, it aspires to tell those more narratively profound stories. And that's something that the franchise under the purview of J.J. Abrams did not really concern itself with doing. And, uh, and that's why I really appreciate and respect what Discovery is doing. Not every choice that it has made with the franchise is one that I enjoy, but I like the show more than I certainly could because in my heart of hearts, I, I do feel like it wants to be the heir apparent to telling stories of import in the universe that we all love. And I want more Star Trek fans to be created. I mean, I made the joke, I think to you before, about how... Star Trek was cool in 2009, and that was really unusual territory for it to be in. Yeah. But it brought more people into the table, and it got more eyes on the franchise. Not a story that I probably would have preferred to tell, but do I love the fact that it made more people stand up and pay attention to Star Trek? Hell yeah, I do. And that's what I want more than anything. I want this franchise to persist. It is my favorite spacefaring franchise. It is one of my favorite franchises in all of media with characters that I adore and have adored since I was a very small child. But I was also the child of a guy who watched the show in the sixties. And I was the brother of a guy who watched TNG first run DS nine first run. And I learned why star Trek is great from them. But if we want star Trek to open up to more people, then it has to be able to stand on its own a little bit more. And that's when people can discover the legacy. And that's when people can go back and absorb the stories that have been told before and hopefully connect with characters that it had never even occurred to them before to pay attention to. It all serves to broaden Star Trek's reach. And that's why I'm largely supportive of what current Star Trek franchise pilots are largely doing well said chris this is why i love talking to you about this stuff you have these very well thought out it's like talking to captain picard you got these well thought out <laughs> Dude, speeches oh, i don't I, I don't know if any any of us can uh can reach that standard but uh i do spend a lot of my time thinking about star trek and um i'm looking forward to, i i can't tell you like, I know that people really don't like Discovery, and I respect that. I really do, and I even appreciate it, because you know what Star Trek is to you, and you want to see more of that. And 
I, I totally understand that perspective. But as a franchise fan and as a devoted franchise fan for the entirety of my existence, I'm more optimistic now about what the future holds than I have been in a very long time. Because we are actually getting to a point where the people in charge of the franchise are more excited about expanding it than they've been in a really long time. They should have trumpeted and celebrated that 50th anniversary far more than they did. It passed. Absolutely. It came and passed with a whimper. And if we can avoid that by broadening that umbrella, by getting more shows, and by just having more Star Trek to absorb, that's a win for the franchise and that's a win for Star Trek fans. And hopefully along the way we'll meet new friends too. Well, much like the Discovery itself launching itself a millennia into the future... This will pretty much conclude our coverage of Star Trek Discovery here on Standard Orbit because there's no more there's no more Venn diagram to discuss, you know. So <laughs> at least I don't think so because I don't I don't think they're coming back, Chris. Right? Because I think they really uh, tied it all up to the point where you know if you watch the season finale, you think, oh, okay, well. There goes the discovery. I guess season three is going to be about Captain Pike and the Enterprise, right? Because right. you know that's, yeah. the, that's the that's the point of view characters at the end of the show. The last you know the last few scenes. So I, I don't think they'll be coming back because they they would have to re-explain all the things that they've tied up about you know not mentioning them and top secret, all those sorts of things. So I think they're there to stay. I don't know how they're going to do the Section Thirty One show now uh, <laughs> with Giorgio. I guess maybe maybe she you know here's what I think she should be like the Doctor Smith to their lost in space. Oh right? yeah. Uh, she should be, have her own agenda and she does find a way to get back to her time and do her thing. Uh, now you, you, maybe she, you know, you think she wanted to get back to her own universe, but Hey, that's, that's another conversation. <laughs> but, um, but I think that's, that's the angle to play there. If they do indeed follow through with that section 31 show, I, you know, to be honest, I'm, I'd be more excited to see uh, Tyler. He really grew on me as a character. Sure. Especially when you find out who he really was and his, and his struggle and all that. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Um, now I don't know. I mean, they, they kind of calls for a follow-up now because now the Klingons do know that Tyler's not dead. Is the rails chancellorship a fraud? We don't know. Like, I, I assume these are, these are all the things they'll pick up in the 31 show because they kind of promote Tyler to head of 31. So these are the things to look forward to on that side of the fence. But on this side of the wormhole over here, <laughs> you know, we, the, it, it's closed. Star Trek discovery coverage is over here on standard orbit. Captain Pike coverage is we'll put a pause on that, you know, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, if Pike comes back, then hey, we got something new to talk about because these are TOS characters. So I enjoy it when because it's you know it's challenging talking about a fifty-plus-year-old show that was only three seasons and had you know six movies. Um, fortunately, we had the Kelvin timeline movies, but I think those are over now. I'm sorry, that's just the harsh reality, guys. Uh, I loved Beyond, but you know, too little, too late, and here we are. So, you know, the, the, the well of conversation runs dry sometimes. So anything, any, any chance we can get to talk about the original series and those <laughs> characters, I'm all for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but also, too, I mean, think about that. You mentioned the 31 show that we have coming down the pike. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> I mean, go back to 2006 and 7 when we didn't know what the hell the future held for Star Trek or I mean, we hoped that it would come back. We were reasonably sure that it was going to come back. But we had no idea what was coming next or what form it would take. Uh, I think now we're in a far more enviable position than we were back then. So, 
I mean, Section 31 show, bring it on. What Whatever they decide to do with it could be interesting. I kind of hope that it would be an anthology like Discovery was originally mm. supposed to because that would be really cool. <laughs> yes, I yes. mean, there's a lot of nooks and crannies that Section 31 could have operated in. Like, uh, I mean, hell, the assassination of Chancellor Gorkon seems like a Section 31 operation from top to bottom to me. We have the Picard show to look forward to. We have an animated show to look forward to that's one that's more adult-oriented and one that's oriented towards kids. I mean, who knows where things are going to go in the future? Quentin Tarantino's name is still being bandied about. I don't think that's going to happen, but the fact that there's a conversation taking place that's all about the future of the franchise I think is really encouraging. Well, Chris, if people want to hear you talk more about Star Trek and other things online, where can they find you? You can find me uh, on Twitter at Chris Clow, C-H-R-I-S-C-L-O-W. Uh, give a listen to Discovery Debrief, a Star Trek podcast with me, uh, my wife Rachel, and our two co-hosts, Zaki Hassan and Cicero Holmes. Our most recent episode was a uh, sort of recap and review of the What We Left Behind Deep Space Nine documentary. Uh, pretty awesome. I mean, our theater was packed, which is great. I being among people who understood all the DS9 in-jokes, it was like coming home. So we had a lot of fun talking about that. And um, we're going to get together on a more regular basis over the course of the summer in particular to just talk more Star Trek. So lots of good conversations taking place there. Uh, and check out my website, bychriscloud.com. The most recent things that I've posted there is a review of the movie Brightburn and an editorial I wrote that kind of laments the reason that Brightburn exists at the expense of one of humanity's greatest ever ideas, that being Superman. Awesome, Chris. Well, it's always fun talking about Discovery. So I'm glad we can sit down and have these different points of view and still have a conversation about it, because that's what fandom really should be about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm all for it. The fa I mean, there's already a good baseline. We love Star Trek. That's good enough to start a conversation. Absolutely, man. Well... Star Trek Discovery and its use of the original series aren't the only things we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. I, I really like that concept of Titan being an extremely diverse ship because, yeah, like, like you say, you know, we see mostly either humans or aliens who look like humans or have you know forehead appliances and that sort of thing so to really get to stretch that and show us something new and different i think is really cool standard orbit pike he was like a pseudo father figure to kirk in the kelvin timeline which might have been a little on the nose because he's like he's the previous captain is the father figure of the new captain but i understood why they did it you know, for story efficiency, and I, and I did really buy their bond. You know, Bruce Greenwood and Chris Pine, I bought that bond. Earl Grey. There's a line where Deanna says to O'Brien, I think it is. Um, mm -hmm. oh, is that the same as a, a super string? That... He's like, oh, no, no, and no. He's like, no, 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 they're completely different. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally different. Uh -huh. Yeah. Obviously. The Orb. One of the things I was just really struck by is just the way in which this episode is so relevant today. And part of that has been the unfortunate way in which our culture has changed for the worse um, to see this happen in, in much more regularity of people jumping on something and jumping on things, even though they may not have all of the information but believing something to be true, even without 
all the pieces of evidence to actually make it true. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm.com and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals, our different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credit, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, and Mike Richards. Your contributions, your help, your support, they mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. As for me... You can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Holding to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>